0: Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Margaret Hamburg, an internationally recognized leader in public health and medicine. She currently serves as Foreign Secretary of the National Academy of Medicine and Chair of the NTI Bio Advisory Group. She also spent six years as the commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Today, she will discuss the development of COVID-19 vaccines and the distribution and access to those vaccines once they become available. Let's listen in.
1: Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. Um, It's a real, real pleasure uh, to be, um, you know, sharing uh, this afternoon with you and to talk about some really cool things that are happening in the science world, and in life sciences, and to have this incredible uh, speaker um, and the and, uh, uh, luminary in, in life sciences that is going to share uh, the Zoom uh, screen with me. Uh, Nancy thought I, it was a good idea for me just to introduce myself. My name is Pablo Legoretta. I'm uh, an engineer by training. I came to the U.S. about 30 years ago. My wife and I became U.S. citizens, I think, more than 10 years ago now. Um, and I started the business 25 years ago called Royalty Pharma, where what we we started doing is to work with the original innovators in the life sciences, R&D ecosystem, universities and research hospitals uh, to monetize the royalties, the patents they own as a result of the discoveries they have, uh, providing them with up, an upfront cash payment that generally gets reinvested in more research in building buildings. Um, and you know, Royalty Pharma has become uh, uh, one of the uh, participants in the funding of this R&D ecosystem and a business that I had the fortune of taking public in the middle of, of uh, COVID um, this past June. Um, and you know a business that I think has a great future because of, of what's happening in the US in life sciences and medical research, which is truly extraordinary. And I'll, I'll start now by introducing our host, uh, Dr. Margaret Hamburg. Um, uh, Dr. Hamburg um, is an internationally recognized leader in public health and medicine. Uh, Peggy served as Commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for about six years, from 2009 until 2015. As FDA Commissioner, she was known for advancing regulatory science, streamlining, and modernizing FDA's regulatory pathways and the globalization of the agency. Before joining FDA, Dr. Hamburg served as Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation of HSS. Health Commissioner Commissioner of the City of New York and Assistant Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. This is the Institute of the National Institutes of Health that is headed by Dr. Anthony Fauci, which I'm sure a lot of you have seen uh, frequently on on our TVs. Uh, Peggy currently serves as the Foreign Secretary of the National Academy of Medicine This is the health arm of the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. And in that role, she serves as Senior Advisor on on International Matters and is the liaison with other academies of medicine around the world. She's President-elect of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, as well as an elected member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Hamburg currently sits on the boards of the Simons Foundation the Urban Institute, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, Gabi. She's the chair of the Joint Coordinating Group for the Coalition for, the Epi- for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, CEPI. And Peggy earned a BA from Harvard College, her MD from Harvard Medical School, and completed her medical residency at Well Cornell Medical Center in New York City. So before I turn it over to Peggy, I'd like just to share begin by sharing my personal view on how the life sciences sciences R&D ecosystem has delivered, creating highly effective and hopefully safe vaccines that have far exceeded everyone's expectations. For months, many of us have been holding our breath, waiting for the data. It started to come out a few weeks ago with Pfizer and its partner, BioNTech reporting first then Moderna, and more recently AstraZeneca, reporting their preliminary data on efficacy and safety of their vaccines. The data is nothing short of extraordinary. The life sciences R&D ecosystem delivered a real life solution to address the challenges the world is facing, all of us are facing, brought onto us by COVID. In reflecting on the current state of world affairs, I think of Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. We're living through the worst of times, but at the same time, through the best of times. To illustrate the magnitude of the scientific accomplishment, I would like to take you back to January 10th, 2020, the day the Chinese shared with the world the RNA sequence of the virus. The following day, on January 11th, Moderna scientists got to work. And having never seen the actual virus, Within 48 hours, they designed their vaccine in a computer, essentially took the mRNA sequence and in a computer working over 24 hours came up with a solution. They then put this into an animal model to start clinical development. It took several more months to to then begin human clinical trials. But here we are today with an incredibly efficacious vaccine that modern science was able to design and test in less than 10 months. That tiny amount of mRNA that has been given to over 30,000 clinical trial participants and will, will soon be given to millions of humans is one millionth of one gram of genetic material. It's essentially the genetic instructions that will go into our cells, turn our cells into factories and make us produce the vaccine that will protect us against COVID-19, this highly unpredictable silent killer. This is the promise of the US-based medical research ecosystem that is capable of producing an effective solution to this global pandemic. It has been estimated that to vaccinate the entire US population, we would only need about 50 kilos of the material. This underscores clearly the power of the RNA approach to create and develop the medicines and vaccines of the future. To conclude, I would like to draw your attention to another really powerful characteristic of this technology. This is the RNA technology. It is extraordinarily adaptable. If SARS-CoV-2 were to mutate, the modern and biotech Pfizer scientists would go back to work, back to the drawing board, and in a matter of hours, modify the sequence, and produce a new vaccine. So with that, um, I'd like to just invite now uh, Peggy. And I think as I thought about what would be of interest to our audience, I think there's really three big topics that I'd like to see we can cover for you. One is ask Peggy to talk about the science of this extraordinary accomplishment, uh, FDA, the role of FDA, on the on the panel meeting uh which will happen on december 10th um and and also talk about you know the transparency of this process which is really critical to make sure that you know we increase the confidence of the population in the vaccine so that would be sort of the first topic the second one is to talk about domestic and global distribution of vaccines and also access um, how do we prioritize who gets this first? And then the last topic would be to talk about how we prepare ourselves for the future if we we get hit with another one of this um, uh, pandemics. But anyway, uh, I I invite you to to share your thoughts with us. uh, Okay,
2: great. Well, I may talk really fast because there's so much to cover. But thank you for that introduction and framing some of the science. You know, there have been many aspects of the response to COVID-19 that have been very disappointing. And of course, the impact of the the global pandemic and and the burden of disease in our own country has been devastating. But the real bright spot has been the mobilization of the biomedical research community um, to advance the development of critical medical countermeasures, including vaccines. And this has really been across disciplines, across sector collaboration, and um, across borders in terms of international collaboration as well. Vaccine development is usually a very um, cautious, stepwise process that can take a decade or more. The fastest vaccine development to date has been for months. And that was four years. And as was noted, we are on the threshold of having a a vaccine, likely two or more, authorized within less than a year of the recognition of this novel coronavirus and the posting of its genome by Chinese scientists in early January. So this is extraordinary. Moreover, Most vaccines are only partially effective. The most effective vaccine we have is for measles. That's around 94% efficacy as we say. We were all stunned when we started to see the first data from the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine because we were expecting a fairly mediocre set of results for the first generation of vaccines against this new uh, virus. And FDA had set a standard of a 50% efficacy um, as the threshold for their considering authorization or approval. So coming in at over 90% was quite remarkable. And good news is that the data looks like not just um, over 90% um, in certain uh, groups, but even in the elderly who we know tend to mount um, less robust immune responses. But it's, it's important to recognize that, that all of the vaccines under development ha, are moving very, very swiftly because the scientific community and the regulators um, have been working together to find ways to sort of compress the normal cycle of development and accelerate the process without cutting corners in terms of robust regulatory and scientific standards for safety and efficacy. Um, And and this has made a huge difference. In addition, government and industry working together have invested in manufacturing these vaccines even before knowing which vaccines might make it over the finish line, but deciding that the urgency of the situation was such that as soon as we had um, the indications of the benefits outweighing risks and the kind of um, efficacy and safety that we're starting to see, we wanted to be able to move vaccine out to people as swiftly as possible. So so so-called manufacturing at risk, meaning financial risk, um, not safety risk um, uh, in terms of the manufacturing process. So we are so far ahead of where Um, even the greatest optimists thought we might be in terms of the vaccine development process. There are several different categories of vaccines that are in development, and they all hold promise, and they all may have um, uh, pluses and minuses in terms of subpopulations that they work best for, um, costs in terms of access, ability to scale up and manufacture quickly, um, and uh, some of the distribution supply chain issues. So, you know, we really are in a great situation. The mRNA vaccines are are particularly exciting because it's a completely novel platform. Never have we had a mRNA vaccine before, but it looks like it's gonna work. It looks like it, it can be scaled up and manufactured um, pretty easily. And importantly, it does provide this flexible platform for responding to mutations in COVID virus or other infectious diseases that may emerge, and even against other important disease targets like um, cancer. So it's a huge advance that is now, I think, about to, to prove um, its value uh, and, and proof of the scientific concept of using mRNA to um, stimulate the human body to mount a robust immune response. There are other kinds of vaccines, Um, vector, uh, viral vector vaccines, which is what AstraZeneca is and the Johnson and Johnson, where you use uh, a viral vector that can't infect people as a way of getting the um, material, the genetic material, the, the protein in to the human body to mount the immune response. Then there's more old-fashioned strategies like using um, bits and pieces of the the virus um, uh, to be injected and mount the immune response, or taking the whole live virus, attenuating so it so it can't cause disease, and using that to mount a response. And and vaccines in all those categories are under development. There's more. There's close to 200 vaccine candidates in development around the world and about a dozen in um, advanced stages of clinical study. So we're going to start to see these uh, rolling out very quickly. And FDA will be doing a vaccine advisory committee meeting on December 10th to look at the data from Pfizer, which has now um, submitted an application for emergency use authorization, which is a a form of authorization, it's not a full approval, but it enables the vaccine or another product to go out for broader use um, in an emergency context, because the there are demonstrated benefits that outweigh um, any known risks. And it can be put forward in a way that targets the particular priority populations for use. It's important that it's going to a vaccine advisory board because that means that there will be a panel of independent scientific experts and vaccinologists who will review the data in a public way with the FDA scientists who have reviewed the data and analyzed the data and the industry scientists who worked on developing the vaccine And so there will be this opportunity for a a transparent discussion of, um, you know, what is known about this vaccine. The Vaccine Advisory Board will make recommendations to FDA and very quickly in this case, I'm sure, you know, really uh, probably 24-hour turnaround, FDA will make a decision about the emergency use authorization. In that authorization, they will also likely indicate the priority groups for which the vaccine can be used. That will be coupled though with another advisory group at the Centers for Disease Control um, called the ACIP, the Advisory Council on Immunization Practice, which makes also specific um, recommendations for use of the vaccine on a public health basis. And uh, everybody's geared up to move as quickly as possible so this doesn't slow movement forward. But it is important because it can reassure those who are worried about were corners cut in developing these vaccines? Can we trust them? Was there too much intrusion of politics into the process? Was there pressure um, to move more quickly than the science really um, suggested? So both of these, the CDC and the FDA advisory groups, are independent scientists of, of great stature Expert in the field of vaccine development and vaccine uh, use. Um, So, when the vaccine does move out into um, uh, broader populations for use, we can have a lot of confidence in the process and in the science and safety of these vaccines. But it's important to note that you never know as much either about efficacy or safety of a vaccine or other medical product when it first goes into the marketplace, even after a full approval. Um, because you're moving from having studied it in a very controlled environment with a limited number. In the case of these vaccines, it's a huge number, much more than normal, in fact, for vaccine studies, um, you know, well over 40,000 individuals in these studies. But, but you're moving from tens of thousands in this case to hundreds of thousands, millions. And when we start to look at the world uptake we're talking billions. So if you, there's a rare safety concern, one in a hundred thousand, you won't have seen it by now necessarily, but you may see it um, over the course of broader use. And there are important efficacy questions still to be asked and answered to really understand different subpopulations that may respond differently. Um, and also the duration of protection. We have no real sense yet of whether the vaccine will last for a year in terms of its ability to protect or whether it will last for 10 years, whether we'll need boosters or not. And it is important to recognize that these first couple of vaccines that look like they'll be going out first actually require two shots. So you take one, you wait uh, three to four weeks, you get your second dose and then you have to wait a couple more weeks to get that robust immune protection. So even as we start vaccinating, there'll be a lag between the time that it starts to um, uh, really um, have the protective effect. And of course, there's also gonna be the access issue. So before most of the US population and then the world gets vaccinated, time is going to pass. And, and during that period, we're going to have to still maintain every public health precaution that you're being asked to um, follow now, um, the mask, the social distancing, avoiding large gatherings, et cetera. Um, the, the plan is still being worked out. And of course, it's going to be complicated because a lot of the vaccine distribution is going to occur during the transition as well. And there's going to have to be a seamless handoff but key priority groups in terms of risk will get the vaccine first. Healthcare providers, certainly, other frontline providers, likely, the elderly, those with um, significant comorbidities or other diseases that put them at special risk, and those living in congregate settings like nursing homes. And then it will start to go out to broader populations. Importantly, as this distribution occurs, as well as defining the priority groups and targeting these vaccines for them, there is a very important requirement for being able to track who got the vaccine, especially if we're using several different types of vaccine that need two doses. We need to make sure people get the second dose in the right time frame and they get the correct vaccine as their second dose. And then there's something called pharmacovigilance, which is essential. Um, And we do this routinely, but it's even more important in the case of COVID-19, where um, FDA tracks working with the company and working with the healthcare system, tracks the experience of having taken the vaccine to better understand efficacy and identify any emerging uh, safety concerns. So, um, it's it's a a complex system to get the vaccine out there. Complicated for some of these vaccines because they require what's called cold chain, meaning that they have to be stored um, at uh, very low temperatures. The Pfizer vaccine, in particular, you've probably heard, has to be stored at around 100, minus 100 um, uh, uh, Fahrenheit, uh, 80 uh, centigrade. Um, and uh, once it's thawed it has to be stored in a refrigerator and used in five days so that puts certain limits on who has the right kind of storage facilities and um, and so who can distribute it so it's not an easy the science of developing the vaccines incredibly challenging but distribution and follow-up challenging as well and on top of that there has been a greater than um, expected um, drop in confidence in these vaccines um, with um, only about half of the population reporting that they're likely to take the vaccine. Um, That reflects some of the ongoing vaccine hesitancy anti-vax movement that existed pre-COVID and has been active um, uh, during this crisis, but it also reflects the concerns around Um, a vaccine development program called Operation Warp Speed that suggests it's going unnaturally fast, um, and manufacturing at risk that suggests there's something dangerous about the vaccine. The fact that, you know, we have watched um, political pressures on the FDA and decisions um, that eventually were walked back from that reflected um, that political pressure. And so Many people that normally are very supportive of vaccines have um, raised concerns about, can we trust this vaccine? But as we're starting to see the evidence, as people better understand the process, the transparency around the engagement of independent scientific experts and availability of the data, and um, uh, as the reality of what a vaccine can really mean, as a path forward out of this crisis. Already, polls are starting to show um, greater enthusiasm for taking the vaccine, but we do have to really have some targeted campaigns working with specific communities using both The right messages and the right messengers to regain some of the trust and confidence that has been lost because even the world's best vaccine won't make a difference if people don't take it. You need to have a sufficient number of people taking the vaccine um, to build up that protective effect to um, uh, limit and ultimately prevent ongoing spread and of course to um, protect uh, individual health and safety. So that's kind of a quick run through um, the vaccine development process, access distribution issues. Internationally, I guess I should mention, uh, the US has not engaged with a very broad international uh, new initiative um, to make vaccines available to the poorest countries. I think that will change with a changing administration. But it is crucial that we not just think about the U.S. need for vaccination, but the global need. Um, You know, in my view, it's because it's the right thing to do in terms of global health and um, humanitarian support. But also it's in our vested interest because this is a global pandemic and no country or region can be safe um, until all countries and regions um, address this devastating infectious disease um, problem. So uh, there are efforts underway to assure vaccine um, uh, availability, both investments in development and uh, purchase and distribution of vaccines in low and middle income uh, countries. Um, You know, we, we certainly are not the only country that has moved Rapidly in terms of vaccine development, the Chinese and the Russians actually sort of skipped the final stage of large scale controlled study of of vaccines to move them out into broader populations. And some of those vaccines are being made available in other countries, although um, one of the Chinese vaccines now has a pause on it because of questions about it. Um, But there are other countries that are moving vaccines out into use. And it, it will become, you know, a bit of a crazy quilt in terms of different vaccines from different manufacturers, different categories of vaccines. But I think we are very fortunate that it turns out that this is a fairly easy virus to make a vaccine against and the early studies with the mRNA vaccines are telling us that even those vaccines using other strategies for vaccine development are likely to be successful because the target of the spike protein, those funny little things that stick out from the ball of the virus um, is very effective in terms of stimulating um, a robust immune response. So just in terms of the future quickly, and then we'll get to questions, um, you know, clearly a lot to be optimistic about in terms of of how advances in the life sciences are going to enable us to have vaccines that will help um, us make very rapid progress in managing and ultimately controlling this global disease pandemic. But but in the meantime, since this is going to unfold over a period of, of months, years, in terms of the vaccine rolling out, um, we are seeing great progress in the development of new therapeutics for treating severe disease, but also preventing disease progression. We've also learned how to manage cases better than we did in the beginning. And so even without those new therapeutics, um, the death rates are, have come down and uh, we hope that we'll continue to see progress in terms of medical management. But it's of great concern as we're experiencing this this exponential surge in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths now across the country and in some other parts of the world as well. That hospitals will be overwhelmed and um, not be able to provide the quality of care that we now um, have uh, within our potential if healthcare systems. Are adequately uh, resourced in terms of both the healthcare workers and um, and, uh, bed capacity, PPE, um, et cetera. You know, likely this coronavirus will be with us for quite a while. It it may be endemic, but tamped down because of routine immunization and the ability to manage uh, cases. Um, It could be like SARS, which, you know, briefly created. Tremendous uh, disease in certain uh, settings. It was not a global pandemic in the way that that this coronavirus has become, but it burned out and it has not um, reappeared. Um, but there are a lot of reasons to think that this one, you know, has, uh, you know, really taken hold. Uh, in a much more dispersed way and likely will become endemic, meaning it will continue to circulate, you know, like flu, except that we'll be able to control it better than flu, most likely, because we have a better vaccine until the mRNA technology is applied to flu, and then we'll really be in better shape with flu as well. You know, this is probably the pandemic that has really woken us up that we can't be complacent about the reality of of biological threats, and I would say both naturally occurring and deliberately caused with advances in in biotechnology, the ability to create pathogens and and use them deliberately as as weapons of state or of terrorism, I think is increasingly real. But we've also seen that mother nature can be a powerful terrorist. We have, at various points, responded to past threats and outbreaks to to build capacity, but we we start the process, we become complacent, we start to um, divest um, from some of the initial uh, commitments and investments made, Uh, we let um, programs go um, a little bit um, uh, uh, off course um, and underfunded, now, I think there there is no denying, something that many of us had tried to argue for a long time, that biological threats could be totally destabilizing to life as we know it, and a serious national security and international security threat. We've seen now beyond a shadow of a doubt how a disease like COVID-19 uh, undermines um, health and and well-being, but also society as we know it, uh, the economy and our economy and, of course, confidence in in political leaders and um, important institutions uh, and creates um, tensions and dislocations among many nations around the world. So we need to come out of covid learning lessons, um, putting in place stronger preparedness programs that are sustainable with committed political leadership and um, the alignment of expertise and science with our program uh, planning and policies. I'll stop with that and delighted to take questions.
1: Peggy, thank you for that brilliant, brilliant explanation of many things related to the virus. I I want to acknowledge and welcome Senator Joe Lieberman, one of the founders of No Labels, who joined us in this call. And um, before I I open up for questions, um, I just want to share a couple of things that um, are interesting. One is, uh, there's been a lot of questions about how this is going to be distributed in the US and elsewhere because of this cold chain challenge. One thing I heard recently, is that maybe, maybe um, FedEx is gonna get involved. And if you think about it with their distribution network throughout the country, the facilities they have all around, if they were to put these refrigerators all around the country, it would be relatively simple to really make sure that, that this has broad, broad distribution. So I thought that was a pretty interesting potential development. And then the other thing that I maybe just would like you to quickly touch on, Yes, it's really important that the audience understands this clearly. It's the difference between protective immunity and sterilization immunity, meaning that a lot of people think you get a vaccine, um, you're done. And it's really not the case. In this case, we are going to get these vaccines. It's likely going to protect us 90%. uh, We've seen the numbers. They're extraordinary against developing disease, getting sick, getting hospitalized, and having issues. But what we do not know yet is whether the vaccines are also going to prevent uh, infection, transmission. So we might be carriers of the virus um, and then, you know, infect others that could be at risk, um, even though we're vaccinated. So, you know, that really means that we have, as you said, Peggy, we have to be incredibly careful in the way we're going to behave over the next, you know, several months, uh, maybe more, maybe half a year, a year with masks and all of that to make sure that we really control this. And um, we might get lucky, we might get lucky, maybe one of these vaccines does provide that kind of, of uh, immunity, sterilization immunity, but it was not, you know, thought of something that was likely uh, at the start of this whole process. But I don't know if you want to comment anything. Strike sure. You?
2: Well, these are complicated uh, issues, yes. but really, really important. First, let me also acknowledge Senator Lieberman and say that he was one of the early uh, pioneers and leaders on the issues of, of bio threats and taking them seriously and working on the Hill, trying to uh, help to support uh, critical programs and policies uh, to really, you know, make the world a safer place. Uh, so I had the great pleasure of doing some work with him in those early days um, and you know, was deeply grateful for his, his leadership. And frankly, you know, many people didn't take these threats very seriously, thought it was more of, stuff of science fiction. So having someone of his uh, stature and caliber in the world of, of uh, foreign affairs, um, speaking out on these issues, taking action, and putting his um, expertise uh, behind it, you know, really helped us to move the ball in in important ways and and to to put in place some programs and policies that laid the foundation for being able to mount the kind of of response, particularly in terms of the biomedical research activities um, that have have gone uh, well, but also in terms of of thinking about how we should do a whole of government response um, to a threat like this. So thank you so much, Senator
3: Lieberman. Thank you, uh, Peggy. Your words really mean a lot to me. I remember uh, back when we worked together, it was probably 2002. It was in the aftermath of 9 11. And as some people here, I'm sure, remember, after 9 11, there was actually a, a, a bio attack uh, on the Capitol, particularly the office of Senator Daschle. So it focused us on that. You, you were extremely helpful then. You have continued to be just to a wonderful public servant, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention and honor the memory of your parents, uh, uh, who were phenomenal people, and uh, so proud of you, and that you, you got a great genetic inheritance. <laughs> David Himberg, uh, Peggy's father, was the, uh, many things, head of the Institute of Medicine, a leading American psychiatrist, and mother was a breakthrough scholar, really, but David, uh, chaired or was president of the Carnegie Corporation. And during the 90s, right after the fall of the um, uh, Soviet Union, uh, finance uh, sponsored with the Aspen Institute a series of programs around the world where members of Congress uh, met with uh, members of the uh, of the new Duma in Russia and other uh, new uh, like executives or legislators from uh, the newly emerging countries of the former Soviet Union, and it was—they it was, it was, were wonderfully effective programs. We got to meet you a little bit then, but your and your mother, your father played an important role. Your mother and father were just the, the, the greatest, really. So um, I know they—they're they, gone now, but uh, I'm sure. Uh, being somewhat spiritual, that they're very proud of, what you continue. <laughs> okay, thank you. Well, thank you school. so
2: much. Uh, a little, a little detour from our, our topic, but it means a lot. And uh, I was so delighted that you joined, given your leadership on these issues. I'll return now to somewhat more mundane issues of uh, of um, supply chain um, and the notion of FedEx. I mean, I think the key thing is. Um, uh, you know, that it, the the temperatures for the Pfizer vaccine, you know, really are dry ice temperature, not just regular refrigeration. And you have to have specialized uh, freezers. But the faster you can get the product there, the, the, the better off we are. And um, uh, that leads me to the topic of we also need you know, more than one vaccine for different setting. And we're lucky, we're likely to have it. And that comes to the second question that that had been posed um, about the different types of immunity and why that matters. Um, Because different vaccines may give us different types of immune protection. You can have a vaccine that is very important in limiting um, uh, spread of disease and um, burden of disease, but it doesn't actually prevent you from getting disease or transmitting it. And people are surprised by that, but you just have to think uh, to our, our you know experience with annual flu vaccination. Probably all of you know someone or perhaps yourself who got the flu vaccine, but you still got flu, but you probably had a shorter um, duration of symptoms and milder symptoms of having had the vaccine. Um, you also probably have had the experience or known someone who got the flu vaccine and then gave someone else um, flu. Um, and it sort of goes against the way we over the years have come to think about vaccines, but it's so important in the case of COVID-19 because it it, it is another argument for why Even with increasing vaccination of the public, we're still going to have to take um, precautions uh, to limit spread until we know more about um, the kind of protection we're getting from the vaccines. And we still don't know what exactly the immune response to either infection or vaccination looks like um, in terms of what is it that's actually protecting you from infection um, and what is um, enabling uh, you know, lasting protection um, and what may be just uh, transient. And that's why there's been a lot of confusion about what does it mean to have antibodies after you've been infected? Are you safe from reinfection? And what will it mean in terms of these different vaccines? Um, it does. We already are learning a lot more and it's hard. We all want to know so much right away it's hard to remember that science is an iterative process and it does take time and we haven't had much time with this novel virus Um, so we're really still just being able to map out the correlates of protection of immune protection Um, but it does look like certain vaccines behave a little bit differently with your immune system it looks like the mrna vaccines may still enable um, this ability to transmit, while the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a viral vector, like we talked about briefly earlier, um, uh, may, for whatever reasons, um, be more effective at preventing um, uh, any transmission after vaccination. Uh, we just don't know. We're still learning. And some of it is, you know, how the studies get structured. Some of it is, you know, learning over time. Um, but it, it, it's frustrating because we'd all like absolute and clear answers that we could provide to people now. But, but it's part of the process of doing the science, applying the science and learning as we go. Um, to uh, strengthen what we're doing to, to create the next generations of vaccines that are um, more protective, um, have the right, you know, the preferred um, uh, patterns of antibody generation, et cetera. Um, but, you know, the most important message, I think, is that the progress is tremendous. But it is not going to be a magic bullet where it's, you know, suddenly the light goes on and we go back to life as we knew it before.
1: I think uh, why don't we go to Bob Rubin,
3: who has a question. Hi, Peggy. Hi. I'll ask a brief question and you can give a brief answer. How much damage has been done to CDC and FDA are, are global institutions of enormous importance. How much damage has been done to them by the way they've been treated over the last four years?
2: Well, it, it it is a challenging time in terms of how do we rebuild their reputation, how do we restore uh, morale, how do we re-engage the expertise that still resides within these extraordinary uh, federal science-based uh, uh, public health agencies. I actually think FDA is going to rebound more easily than CDC, um, which I wouldn't have predicted before. But, um, you know, FDA, number one, uh, because of its critical role in really helping to translate the advances in science into real world products, I think, um, you know, people look at, at it and can see the difference that it can make. And also, FDA, because it sits in such a unique position where it It actually regulates and oversees, you know, almost uh, 25 cents of every dollar that consumers spend on products in this country. It has a huge set of constituencies, um, including, you know, industry and a big chunk of the economy is affected by FDA. And everybody has really rallied round because I think there's a recognition that having a, a, a strong, effective regulator can actually speed progress. But a regulator that's crippled and not trusted undermines their ability to to get things done and undermines public confidence in their work, which ultimately undermines confidence in the very products themselves. CDC, I think, actually has a deeper problem um, because uh, it, 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 exists in a somewhat different environment. CDC, public health is really all about prevention. So when it's doing its job well, you don't even recognize or appreciate what it's doing. Um, and and CDC, to be perfectly honest, needs a dramatic rehabilitation. I, I love the agency. I'm totally committed To public health, you know, I I ran the New York City Health Department, you know, which is, you know, the largest health department in the country actually, and works very closely with CDC. And I deeply understand its CDC's importance. But it it, pre COVID was in need of both more resources, it's always been underfunded uh, as part of our health uh, care enterprise but it also had become very fragmented. Public health happens more at the state and local level than at the federal level, but you can can carve it up too much so that you're not making efficient use of resources, you're not aligning strategies, um, and you're not able to really advance some of the important missions in our modern world. Uh, So so it's going to have in addition to rebuilding trust and confidence, I think it it needs to actually do a very deep examination of how it should be organized, what should be um, its core functions. And importantly for CDC also, both CDC and FDA, we need to get back on the the international stage. Um, Both CDC and FDA, historically, number one, have been the models, the gold standards for other Um, like agencies around the world to develop uh, in similar ways and in coordination. But also, um, it's been very important for FDA and CDC to have people overseas, and it's created formal and informal channels of collaboration and information sharing and, and situational awareness that we have now lost. So we need to get that back as well. So
1: Ron, Ron should I
0: ask a question for Peggy? Sure. Just a quick question. You made me think, Peggy. Um, could this mRNA technology potentially work for a vaccine for the common cold? Does it have that potential? Uh,
2: yes. You know, the common cold is kind of a a, a garbage can term in that, that there are many respiratory viruses that we call the common cold, but one Um, set of viruses that cause the common cold are actually coronaviruses. So, um, you know, linked to the the SARS coronavirus 2 vaccine that causes COVID-19. So absolutely, I think very importantly also, the mRNA vaccine technology is going to give us a new platform for flu vaccine, which will give us a much more effective flu vaccine, and that will be huge. We are... Making flu vaccine for the most part um, using very antiquated technologies that involve um, inserting virus into chicken eggs and growing it. And you know, sometimes you actually kill the chicken eggs because the virus is lethal to, to poultry, and then you're really stuck. But, um, but you know, every year we have to make new flu vaccines. Uh, to reflect the circulating strains, and it has to go through this, you know, arduous, delicate, vulnerable process. This could just flip the switch to make it so easy. And against a host of other infectious disease threats, including the ability with a emerging infectious disease threat that hasn't yet been recognized to as soon as we get the genetic um, material for that virus, to be able to insert it in and make vaccine. And as I mentioned, it also has real potential against some chronic diseases like cancer. So this is a game changer. It's certainly one of the silver linings of uh, the devastation that's been COVID-19. Omar Simons has a question also. Uh,
1: Yes, my question is, um, if we look forward to January 2021, will we be back to normal? What would be no, what would be different, um, just to make it concrete for us?
2: Well, I don't think we'll be completely back to normal, but I think, especially in the United States, by then we will have had large scale um, vaccination um, that will really make a difference in making um, our, our, our country safer. Uh, much of the world will also have been able to become vaccinated. We'll see opening up of schools and businesses and likely travel um, in very significant ways. Uh, all of this said with a word of caution, because, you know, things can go wrong. You know, the, the news to date on the vaccines is just extraordinarily promising nobody thought that the science and the stars would align in the ways that they have um, to move at this speed and with this level of success. But, you know, it is possible, you know, I I almost hate to say it, um, but that we will discover, you know, some major problem in either scale up and manufacturing of the vaccines, or worse, uh, safety of the vaccines, which will you know, might only compromise the use of one vaccine, but would certainly undermine confidence in the rest of the vaccines. Uh, it's unlikely, but perhaps the virus could mutate in ways that would make the, the um, vaccine approaches we're using now much less effective. We don't think that's likely to happen, but, you know, the virus, you know, does mutate in, in certain ways. Um, you know, Other things could go wrong, but i think that that there will be dramatic changes because of these advances uh in science but i think we will still have covid in the background you know and you said january 2021 right
1: uh, january. July, july 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 2021
2: yeah um you know uh covid uh, the coronavirus may still be in the background circulating we may still have you know pockets of spread where people are under vaccinated, um, uh, we we uh, likely will still be recovering from the burden of disease itself. You know, one of the the sad and unexpected things with this virus is that even in people who have had mild cases, we are finding that that many of them do have um, long term symptoms that that persist, um, you know, a lot in terms of lung, but also cardiac muscle uh, damage and some uh, potential neurologic effects, uh, the so-called long haulers. um, And of course, others that have had more severe disease may have, you know, significant ongoing compromise. So we're still going to have medical care issues to deal with. We're going to have to rebuild Our economy. We're going to have to rebuild um, certain businesses that have been devastated, and we're going to have to rebuild our healthcare systems. There may be some benefits in terms of doing things differently and better coming out of it. I hope Biden is right about rebuilding better. Um, And certainly in different domains of activity, you can point to things that I think will be different and, and will be improved. Um, some say, you know, this has accelerated progress in certain directions, whether it's the use of telehealth and digital tools and medicine or um, using virtual technologies for meetings rather than getting on airplanes and traveling places. Um, but, I, you know, we will not be able in July of 2021 to feel like that was a bad memory. But, you know, right. we're back to the way things were.
1: So a couple more questions, Maureen Levin and Philip Soren.
3: Thank you very much for providing us with such an extraordinary panoramic view of the struggle to defeat the COVID. Uh, My question is about the mRNA technology. Can you say a little bit about when that originated and a little bit about how it's been developed and in addition, when did it first become possible to use that technology in order to try to create a vaccine against COVID or anything else? Thank now, you.
2: Well, the technology has been sort of bumping around for a while as a sort of uh, a theoretical construct, um, and some you know studies in um, you know test tubes and, and animals, but it it wasn't actually. Embraced by the scientific community, either academia or industry, in a in a substantial way for a long time, um, and many people wrote it off entirely. Um, the you know the sort of developers of it. Um, uh, are now sitting pretty, but they were, you know, they were really mocked in some scientific quarters early on that this, you know, just really would never work and it would be too dangerous because you're inserting genetic material into cells and then getting them to generate um, DNA and and um, uh, the the cascade to proteins um, and you know all the things that could go wrong. A couple of entities, um, including BioNTech, that that is now partnered with Pfizer and Moderna, you know, really did target it to um, a couple of conditions, not just vaccines, but but therapeutics um, for BioNTech, and, um, and Moderna um, started working on a vaccine, a set of vaccines against several infectious diseases, and um, and I think. Um, maybe a, a, a form of cancer as well, um, and they, they were working at the time that, that sars coronavirus two first emerged on a vaccine against MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is another coronavirus that has caused um, disease that tends to be episodic and limited mainly um, to the Arabian Peninsula, Middle Eastern uh, region it's transmitted um, with with camels as its vector, um, so so they had a, a bit of a, a leg up on um, on moving to a, a, a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine when when this first emerged in early January. Uh, but you know, ironically, I I had a discussion with the CEO of Moderna, uh, I think in last November, just about a year ago. Where he was seeking my advice about, you know, how to really get the attention of the FDA, because this was a novel technology. There never had been a vaccine created or tested in people, and um, you know they were concerned about whether or not, you know, they really could be taken seriously and 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 how to proceed. And then suddenly, you know, they are at the center of of everything FDA is is focused on now. Um, so it's, it's, it's truly a pioneering technology applying, um, you know, advanced uh, scientific understanding of uh, genomics and human biology, um, you know, to really important problems that will have, uh, you know, just a lot of ramifications for strengthening our armamentarium inter- min- against a range of diseases.
1: Adding to what uh, the answer Peggy gave you, I just looked it up, and Moderna was started in 2010, and I was talking to the CEO recently. Uh, This is the 10th vaccine that they put into human clinical trials, Um, so they had a lot of experience. Now, all of the other vaccines have been moving more slowly, you know, more, you know, in the normal pace of development, and as Peggy said, they had a lot of experience and were able to react very quickly to covid And as I mentioned initially, on, you know, in 48 hours, design this vaccine and then start, you know, to work in animals and eventually humans. I think uh, Philip Soran and Barry Kramer have questions. I don't know if we have time. uh,
3: Mark, I'll go quick. You know, 100 degrees below zero Fahrenheit is a big number. I can understand refrigeration, maybe even freezing. Why so cold?
2: You know, I don't, I, you know, I have to say, I don't know enough why their product has to be that cold. Um, you know, it's the same basic technology as the Moderna vaccine, which requires freezing, but not at, at you know, that, you know, dramatically low uh, level. I'm sure Pfizer is working on how to reformulate it to, to make it uh, uh, less dependent on that kind of a cold chain. But I think it was in an effort to move there. It's it's the kind of thing that you know might have been adapted over the course of development if it wasn't this kind of um, you know pressure to to get a vaccine out into the marketplace to address a crisis. And I'm sure we're going to see a second generation of this vaccine over time as they learn more about the technology and and how to to revise it. But I'm, I'm not sure what um, is its commercial confidential information, I would suspect, what makes it sufficiently different from the Moderna, um, uh, that it, that that there is this dramatic difference. Um, but ideally, you want to get them out of, of that kind of freezer, cold chain, um, if you can, uh, period. Because when you're thinking about a vaccine for Global access—it's—it's—it's um, it's, it's very hard to even have vaccines that require refrigeration in many places, let alone um, freezers, let alone you know dry ice and um, you know that kind of you know really um, extreme. Um, I,
1: actually, uh, Peggy, it's—it's it's what you just said what led Moderna to actually in, innovate. They have been working on ten vaccines, some of them that were going to be used in you know, places where refrigeration does not exist. So they figured they solved the problem and it's in a lipid. So it's much more stable. And the Moderna vaccine does not require the refrigeration that the Pfizer one does. Moderna is stable for months in 2 to 8 degrees, which is much more normal refrigeration. So it it is, as you said, you know, the result of just tinkering with the technology which they have for. It's the 10th vaccine and they have solved the problem. And eventually, I think Pfizer will solve it.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So, Barry, you have a question? Barry Kramer?
0: I, actually, uh, someone else asked a similar question, so I, I won't drill down further, but I, I do want to thank the doctor for, for taking the time to educate us. It's much appreciated.
2: My pleasure.
0: So,
1: um, I think that's it uh, in terms of questions, uh, Nancy Uh, Margaret Liz, is there anything on your minds that uh, you would like to cover?
3: Can I uh, ask a quick question, Uh, Joel Myers? If if 30 to 40 percent of the people do not agree to be vaccinated, what impact will that have on the rest of us?
2: It will mean uh, inadequate control of uh, the virus circulating in communities, continuing risk of infection, and spread and it will prolong, um, you know, all of the damaging effects of this um, current uh, uh, crisis. Um, And that's why it's so important when we have a a medical tool like a vaccine that, you know, we we can, can really demonstrate um, have marked benefits. And to date, the, the two mRNA vaccines, you know, have a very encouraging safety profile and you see most of the safety issues by two months out. The, the I think, dirty little secret about both of these vaccines is that they're very unpleasant to take, apparently. Um, they're very, what we call, reactogenic. You get um, local soreness, probably um, uh, some uh weakness or headache or just sort of general malaise that's transient um but but you get you you get a a a sore shoulder and probably some redness at the site
1: it's about a day right of, of yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it's relatively
2: quick yeah it's not as bad as smallpox vaccine where you get a big oozing lesion that actually can spread the virus until it, um uh heals and
3: seals over right all right thank you one, one other quick question it seems to me that this is going to greatly exacerbate the uh, economic difference between uh, the united states and, and third world countries since it could be two or three years to some of these other countries are vaccinated
2: well i think you know it for all kinds of reasons including public health disease control it's in our interest to move as quickly as we can to make sure that there is, you know, global um, access and uptake of vaccine. Some of the vaccines that are in development are gonna be pretty cheap um, and and easier to deploy. You know, we still don't have all the data on them, but even the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine that is moving into final stages of study um, is, is likely to be a vaccine um, that can be made in, in large volumes pretty quickly, um, quite cheap and, and um, pretty easy to administer. The data is slightly confusing about how protective it is, but it looks like uh, it has a, an unusual dosing schedule that seems to work. We still need to understand it, but where you give you know half a dose and then a full dose for the second shot, but um, it looks like it may be more effective at limiting transmission. Um, you know, virus uh, shedding as well. So, um, you know, that that may be a very important additional tool on the vaccine that we've been spending so much time talking about, the mRNA. And then there are other vaccines that are in development, and some of them, you know, being developed with um, developing country needs in mind. Um, so there's been a huge galvanization. Of philanthropy, along with governments and international organizations have come together to create a new entity called the ACT Accelerator that is focused on diagnostics, drugs, and vaccines. But the vaccine arm, COVAX, um, has been the most active of these units. And it's working on funding R&D for new vaccines, uh, portfolio vaccines, but also assuring um, uh, the manufacturing Uh, and the advanced purchase with the bulk of these vaccines going to low-income countries, high-wealth countries and middle-income countries are also investing in this entity with the understanding that um, a portion of what they invest in will be for the benefit of countries that otherwise wouldn't have access uh, to vaccines. But it also will enable a portion of the vaccine to go to those other um, countries, the wealth countries, and it's a way of um, of doing good, but also diversifying your portfolio, in a sense, because at the end of the day, we don't know which vaccines are going to end up being the best, and there may be some really good vaccines that are developed in our U.S. program, for example. but that we might want access to for our citizens. So those kinds of activities are underway as well as um, other nations have robust programs underway. Some already, as I mentioned, have vaccines that are out there. Although, you know, I at least am a little skeptical because they really did short circuit um, the R&D process. Uh,
1: Joel, uh, you know, maybe just providing a little bit more information. I I believe the price point for the uh, mrna vaccines, uh, Pfizer and and uh, moderna is in the thirty to forty dollars um, with some discounts to um, in governments that actually you know uh, entered into an agreement ahead of time uh, more in the thirty dollars. and the price points of the other vaccines are much lower as Peggy was saying it's more like two to five dollars. Um, so you know those will be obviously more accessible to to um, the developing world. And just one other very quick thing to mention. You were talking about uh, disparity between the U.S. and um, other countries. The reality is that one of the things that COVID has shown us is that there's a lot of inequity in health outcomes in the U.S. Um, And um, one interesting development is that in New York, Mount Sinai um, had been looking at the topic for a long time. Um, you know, really, because in New York, it's, it's incredible, but you have two zip codes that are contiguous one to other. and in one zip code, the population has access to the best medicine in the world, the best hospitals, and in the contiguous zip code, it's not the case. So, and, 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 and Mount Sinai covers, you know, a lot of this area. Um, so, one of the things that they did very quickly, uh, uh, as soon as COVID uh, hit and they started to see all of these differences, is that they created institute that's called the Institute of Health Equity Research. And the purpose of this institute be to actually not only look at what's causing health inequity in the U.S., but also trying to propose solutions to this problem. And if any one of you is interested in this topic, I would be happy to actually, you know, put you in contact with ICER. I'm actually one of the founding members of the, of the institute. I think it's doing brilliant, brilliant work that is really necessary uh, in this country. So I think uh, we're past the time It's 5.12, and I'm told by the organizers that maybe what we should do is right up now, thank uh, Peggy for this brilliant, brilliant uh, exposure of you know the whole topic, and also thank all of you for joining us tonight. Thank you,
2: Peggy. Thank you.
0: Dr. Hamburg puts into context the truly historic mobilization of the medical research community to advance the development of a COVID-19 vaccine. The fastest vaccine development to date was for mumps, and it took four years. Now, in less than a year, two COVID-19 vaccines have been submitted for approval, and they are both much more effective at combating the virus than many expected. As bad as COVID-19 has been, this pandemic has accelerated many biomedical innovations that will improve human health for generations to come. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.